Welcome to episode four of What We Are Learning About Learning, a podcast about higher ed teaching and learning created and produced by the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, also known as Candles, at Georgetown University. I'm Kim heisman Lebreski, And I'm Joe King. This episode kicks off a multi-episode exploration of the dynamics of race in the classroom, with an emphasis on ways to become better anti-racist educators. Of course, this is an enormous and urgent topic, so we'll be returning to this exploration repeatedly in future episodes. We've focused this one on hearing from faculty who have taken active steps to build anti-racist practices into their classroom. These teachers will talk about how they got started on this path and what they've learned along the way. They'll share the tools and techniques they turn to to make their classrooms more inclusive, equitable, and just. One thing you'll hear repeated throughout the episode is that becoming an anti-racist educator takes time and is ongoing. There is no easy fix, but there are many concrete, doable things we can adapt for our classrooms to move in the right direction. We're also going to talk about how to make this a lifelong practice. To start, we need to have a picture of the impact of racism on our students, especially our black students and other students of color on campus. And that means hearing directly from them. In the summer of 2020, as the streets of our nation were filled with protesters enraged by the ongoing epidemic of police brutality against black people and racism more broadly, a group of black Georgetown athletes produced a video called I Can't Breathe, in which they shared the pain and harm they've experienced in their everyday lives on our campus and in our classrooms. Here's an excerpt from that video. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Because you think I got into Georgetown due to affirmative action. Because my experience as a student athlete will never be the same as my white counterparts. Because my life only matters to a cop when I have the name Georgetown across my chest. Because being a black female student athlete at a predominantly white institution means not only that I have to prove my worth on the court, but I also have to prove, prove my, my worth, worth in the classroom. And I also have to prove it as a person walking on campus. I can't breathe because you're afraid of me. I can't I breathe. breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. When you tell me that I'm pretty for a black girl. When you ask me if this is all my real hair or if it's weave. And you assume you know who I am before we even have a conversation. When you constantly whitewash my identity. When you judge my intelligence based off the city I'm from. When I'm judged off the color of my skin, and not by my mind, and the kindness of my heart. The faculty you'll hear from in this episode are keenly aware of the student experience. Donna Cameron, a professor in the School of Medicine, put it this way. I mean, that's the water that we swim in. But... I once said that I would like to have a little part of the pool where I can take off my wetsuit and and just sit in the sun and let it warm me instead of having to always be in the water. Racism is in the water. It's in everything that we do and and I just wish I could get out of it sometimes and and just you know float around. When George Floyd was murdered, the medical students and some faculty all participated in writing an open letter. And they had 10 demands or 10 asks that they wanted the administration to consider. 
But the first three words of that letter were, we are suffering. And the mama bear in me was activated. And I'm here, you know, I can, I can listen to them. I can address things. I'm a full professor. I have a, a degree of influence here at this institution. So I just said to myself, what can I do? To be really frank, we know that this recent, you know, campus culture climate survey came out, right? And in which students of color have said that we don't feel recognized, we don't see, feel seen, we don't feel comfortable. And I'm not surprised that they said that, that the, you know, that the survey revealed that because I've had students say that to me. Um, not in class, not in front of their peers. And the reason they don't often say it in class or engage in conversations over race and ethnicity and so on in class is because very often they are a minority, right, in the class. Um, and that's because it's just the reality that we are a predominantly white institution. That was Amrita Ibrahim from the anthropology department in the college, sharing anecdotal examples of the student experience that is borne out in Georgetown's campus cultural climate survey data, a survey designed to, quote, gain a better understanding of students' sense of belonging and perceptions related to diversity and inclusion, end quote, the results of which have recently been released. These results suggested that the Georgetown experience is very different for black students and other students of color than it is for white students. While many students of different groups shared their experiences of racism, the most dramatic differences were between black and Latinx students on the one hand and white students on the other. For example, while about 72% of white students agreed that people at Georgetown supported each other, only about 36% of black students and 59% of Latinx students said the same. Meanwhile, 43% of black students and 62% of Latinx students reported feeling that they are part of the Georgetown community as compared to 76% of white students. Perhaps most relevant for our purposes, black students were much less likely than white students to agree that instructors at Georgetown were effective at creating environments where they felt welcomed. 37 versus 70% and 57% for Latinx students. This last finding points to a problem in the classroom and also to an important opportunity. Of course, many faculty have been aware of these issues for a long time and have worked hard to shape their teaching to create environments where all students feel seen and valued and where the work of anti-racism can be done. We'll be hearing from several faculty today to get a sense of what we can do to better serve our students. These dedicated educators hail from a range of disciplines and schools at Georgetown, including the School of Medicine, McDonough Business School, and the Departments of Anthropology, Linguistics, and History in the college. We also hear from a professor in the graduate program in Education, Inquiry, and Justice, and the Associate Director for LGBTQ Resources. Our conversations with them revealed the deep thoughtfulness and caring evident in their teaching and consideration of how to include and recognize all students. As you will hear, there are a variety of paths, strategies, and techniques they use that may be useful to you as you prepare for your return to campus. In part because of its prominence in the Cultural Climate Survey, we first asked these faculty members what it means to be culturally responsive to their students. Amrita Ibrahim, the anthropologist, reflected on her own practice. So I realize it's very important for 
for my students, many students of color, to feel like they are heard and seen and acknowledged in the classroom and for that to be that classroom space to be a place where they can feel comfortable engaging in learning. Donna Cameron, a professor in the School of Medicine, immediately connected cultural responsiveness to Georgetown's mission. I made my own personal goal to treat students the way we want the culture to be and do it quickly. So by that I mean um, the culture at Georgetown is, our, our institutional mission is cura personalis. So the cultural part has to do with the culture of um, inclusion and um, treating the whole person. The responsive part has to do with um, honoring the culture that we say we want to have, even in our treatment of students. With a similar and crucial recognition of his own positionality, Bob Beese, who teaches in the business school, focused on creating a specific kind of classroom atmosphere. For me, to be culturally responsive means I have to create an environment where all the insights, the greatness, the experiences, everybody in class can come forth into a classroom to be shared. That it's not just through my lens, because I have a very unique lens growing up on the West Coast in Seattle, my hometown, and I have a, I have a perspective, I'm a male, I'm white, and I have a series of experiences. But what I want to do is create an environment where there's more encounters and experiences of each and every individual in the classroom. Because every individual comes in with different needs, different histories, different approaches, and I want to bring those out and honor and celebrating those. People want to be seen, people want to be heard, people want to be understood. And I learn as much from my students, where I learn as much from them and their experiences as hopefully I impart to them in terms of frameworks and all those sort of things. But I have to be open to learn too, for me to be culturally responsive. And lastly, Nick Subterelu. The linguistics professor noted that being culturally responsive to our students will recognize that as a predominantly white institution, many of our students are embedded in a culture that privileges whiteness. This situation demands that we have a direct response. I work from the assumption that that you know my my pedagogy would be generally inclusive of white students because I'm a white man um, from the get-go, and that it is my responsibility as an instructor to make it more inclusive of students of color. Um, and in that, I think the issue becomes, you know, what is the barrier to their inclusion? And um, I think fundamentally the barrier to their, their inclusion is the same barrier to their inclusion elsewhere. It is white supremacy. And we are always trying to dismantle it. Another area of concern is what the Campus Cultural Climate Survey called the college experience, which includes a focus on belonging. As we heard earlier, black students and other students of color feel substantially less belonging on our campus than white students. What can we do about that in our courses? Our faculty group shared numerous strategies they've honed through years of reflection on creating an inclusive, responsive course and classroom. We've grouped these actionable tips into sections creating an inclusive climate, approaches to class facilitation, handling difficult moments, assignment design, and the role of community-based learning. The faculty with whom we spoke all share a commitment to fostering a sense of belonging and to engaging 
with what you will hear Sabrina Wesley Nero call the pedagogy of care. First, you'll hear from Amrita. I don't know if we're doing enough to make our students of color feel comfortable. I'm very frank and open about what I think are racial ideologies and where I stand with respect to them, right? So there are some statements that are just demonstrably false, right? And I'm not going to make that a topic of debate in the sense that we can debate using the texts in our class how race is not a biological reality. It's an opinion because it's not. I'm also a person of color, right? So I also know that with my white students, I my authority is often compromised because they don't see me the way that they might see a white male professor. One thing that I've definitely learned is that the more you humanize yourself as a professor and share of yourself, the students feel more comfortable. Just being a little bit more yourself in a classroom setting um, and also recognizing that our students are people, that they have lives, that they're not just, you know, a body sitting in a classroom. For me, part of my identity is that I do belong. And it's a powerful motivation. So part of what I do is I create a mentorship process with my first year students, with, with uh, juniors and seniors uh, and sophomores who have been through my course. But also that sense of belonging is I will send them emails. Okay, I send them emails. I, 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 you know, I always say, hey, how's it going? I didn't hear anything. Everything okay? But it begins with me reaching out to them um, and then celebrating when they make a presentation. I try to identify something positive that each and every person said or did in that presentation, that sense of belonging, because they do belong at Georgetown, okay? And they need to have their voice heard. And their voice is unique. Every student's voice is unique, but I want to hear every voice. So that sense, I try to create an environment where I try to allow them, as I like to say, unleash the greatness of who they are, because they are somebody. Professor Cameron has taught both a large community-based learning course for first-year medical students and a small seminar course on well-being. Here, she shares some of the strategies she uses in that small class. Well, since I teach medical students, and since they primarily came to medical school to learn about medicine, I like to remind them whenever I can that they're whole people and they're not just here to learn information and skills. And so I like to start with some kind of, um, start each class with some type of check-in. So that, and it's never about medicine. It's always about life. In the small class that I teach, the well-being class, I ask them to complete a questionnaire about their personal health. And then in the next session, I ask them to share their strengths. So whatever those might be, um, I go to bed at night, I'm, you know, I get my sleep, I buy groceries on Sunday and um, make a menu, and then I cook every day or I cook through the week. I don't just buy fast food, etc. And I feel like that's a way for them to hear more about their classmates than, you know, how, what I, how I did on the MCAT their scores, um, or what school I went to, or what undergraduate school I went to, etc. One other thing that has worked really well, emails between classes 
about current events, about, I know you guys are having an exam. I wish you well. You know, just, again, a way to connect and remind them that they're human and that they can have, we can have a, a relationship that's not just teacher, student, but human to human. And over the years, I've been doing this for about 21 years, and over the years, they tell me how much they appreciate the emails between classes. So, of course, I keep doing it. <laughs> I think for the work that I kind of get to do at the university, particularly, I lean into what in our field is called the pedagogy of care, right? Um, there's a level of psychological safety where it's very explicit that in a learning community, it has to be a source of both strength and stretching, right? So strength in the way that um, you can gain strength from each other, but stretched in the way that you don't actually leave the way you came in, right? And so we have this understanding with the pedagogy of care, there's a level of psychological safety that's there where I'm very explicit um, that conflict and discomfort is expected, um, but it's also the consequence of conflict and discomfort is not to push you out, but it's to bring you closer. And if that expectation is clear and it's demonstrated, it's more than words, like it's clearly communicated, but it's also demonstrated that when the conflict happens, we bring each other closer, we seek to clarify, to restore and repair, um, then that type of thing becomes evident over the course of like, actually, this is not a problem. This is a process. It's a step in the process of growing in, and we're in community. And we do that both at the undergrad and graduate level in our courses, but also in some of our other kind of affinity group spaces where we, we just make clear that if we are growing as diverse humans, we will at times have conflict and it's expected. And there's a way that's healthy that we can grow through that conflict um, and doing so in a way that brings people in to strengthen and challenge them and then repair and restore those relationships. That was Bob Beese, Donna Cameron, and Sabrina Wesley Nero, faculty at Georgetown University. We found all these faculty paid special attention to the pedagogy of care and to creating classrooms where everyone belongs. This, in turn, lends itself to an interactive classroom environment because faculty facilitate class sessions in ways that encourage growth. I've tried to focus much more on student-generated discussion and agenda setting in the classroom. I find that that really helps to um, make students feel like they are a little bit more in the driver's seat in terms of what we're talking about and how we're talking about it. Um, and so they end up, uh, I mean, the material that we're reading is still assigned by me, but the way in which they engage it or the themes that they want to pick out from, from that material becomes much more in their control. I think also what I've done more is to listen to students and what do they want as part of a project and to engage them more. And maybe I'll make adjustments on the projects throughout the semester to highlight certain aspects because I listen to students. So I've, I've probably tried to create more of that dialogue than I did in the past because I listen to students. I also like to let the students choose the next speaker, like popcorn style, so that they feel like it's a way to, hand, I mean, in my opinion anyway, it's a way to share the power that a, a teacher might have. Saying their names often, using the polling feature, I was, I'm just always amazed at how people can be like, looking comatose on the screen, and then you start a poll, and suddenly they're involved. And so I think that's a great strategy. 
the centering of white supremacy is ultimately the centering of one aspect of people of color's experience in the United States. I mean, it's a major aspect of their, their experiences is discrimination grounded in white supremacy. Um, and so that, to me, makes, makes our, our classroom relevant and, and potentially interesting to them. And it also makes it a space where their lived realities are not denied in the way that they often report they, their lived realities are denied in other classes. I try to give every student who wants to a chance to speak. So I'll leave a lot of open spaces. I'll ask a question and then I'll just wait until somebody starts talking. And if nobody starts talking, I'll say, you know, I've learned a lot about waiting and I'm happy to wait as long as you like. We set community norms. Um, we actually read and talk about calling in versus calling out um, and read and talk about intent versus impact before, particularly at the graduate school level, um, those courses before we actually go into content. Um, so we have that conversation about how we wanna show up in the space and how conflict is expected um, and what we're gonna do when that conflict happens. We invited them to call us in and it helps them say, wait, they're actually gonna do what they said they're gonna do. Not necessarily they're gonna do it perfectly, but these are the values that we agree to and we're holding ourselves to them um, as much as we're holding each other to them. And I like to say kind of we authentically, we do our best to authentically live out those values without saying we're modeling them. That was Amrita Ibrahim, Bob Beese, Donna Cameron, Nick Subterelu, and Sabrina Wesley Nero. In addition to creating an inclusive class climate, where students feel that they belong and where everyone is comfortable contributing, faculty have found tangible effects from intentionally designing assignments and final projects for inclusion. Features of these types of assignments tend towards making room for student choice and making student experience part of the course. Again, Nick Subterelu. So I teach a course called uh, How Languages Are Learned, um, Linguistics 251. And this past time that I taught it, I actually began the class, I, I, uh, I structured the class around four major assignments. I mean, they're not term papers, but they're you know, products that the students have to produce. Uh, and the first one was a, an autobiography of their language learning. Um, and so they actually read several examples of autobiographies of, of language learning, um, and then they produced their own and uh, also had to view read or view the uh, the autobiographies of some of their peers. Um, so white people are pretty uncomfortable with black writers uh, writing in, in African-American language. Uh, but it turns out, as, as I find, most of my black students find it empowering. Um, and in fact, I had a student uh, in the fall who was taking my class and uh, who asked if he could write his linguistic autobiography in the language that he grew up in with and he was a black student and he actually wrote the whole thing in african-american language and afterwards he was very effusive about how important that was to him and how empowering it was to get to write something for his class in this in this language that that felt like home to him there are really three areas. One, of course, is the syllabus itself. What are we going to be reading? What are we going to be talking about? 
The second thing is assignments. Um, how are you going to be evaluated and what are the rules for that? Um, and then finally, it's class participation. What's going to make you want to participate in class? And then how am I going to both assess you on that, but also incentivize you to doing that, right? Um, and so there's sort of like these three uh, areas where I'm constantly asking myself, not just am I paying a kind of lip service to the idea of diversity and inclusion or just talking about diversity and inclusion, but how can I model that for my students in these, in these arenas? So the first, of course, being the syllabus, I every semester I make sure that I have texts, whether they are films, books, um, interviews with um, scholars of color, women scholars of color, um, non-binary uh, individuals. Um, and the, the aim there is that, you know, as, a, as an anthropologist, of course, it's, it's key uh, for us to teach our students that we learn about cultural and social uh, problems and ask questions and we learn to critique these, you know, um, the world around us through listening to others. Right, so how else to start listening to others but by taking their walks and, and you know, diving in. I try to diversify the sources of knowledge because there's knowledge all around the world. And sometimes, as I like to say, sometimes we only quote old white guys um, and not that they don't have something to say, but the diversity of wisdom from around, I try to bring more of that into the classroom and I actively search for it. And that's a shift. I'd always used to go to try and do, now I actively ship. How can I add? That was Nick Subtarello, Amrita Ibrahim, and Bob Bees. Amrita also chose to design a final project that allowed for a great deal of student choice. Perhaps not surprisingly, faculty have found new and flexible modes of assessment to be preferable when striving for inclusive and responsive classrooms. Whether it's decreasing standardization or increasing student voice and community-based models, alternatives have advantages. While not available to everyone, community-based learning is not only a powerful form of experiential pedagogy, it opens students up to course content in unique ways and lends itself to powerful alternative forms of assessment. For example, one community partner in Donna Cameron's course is an elementary school where medical students share the mini medical school for kids curriculum. Elementary level students tour the Georgetown campus, visit a lab, receive a certificate for practicing mini-medicine, and participate in a white coat mini-ceremony. The program draws on a psychology concept called professional identity formation, meaning these medical students begin to see themselves as healthcare professionals. The medical students also gain a much deeper understanding of the community they're serving. This illustrates the dynamic behind community-based learning. Exposure and inclusion lead to a greater sense of belonging. An ever-present risk when trying to develop an anti-racist pedagogy and frequently on the minds of faculty is the difficult moments that can arise in the classroom. The most important thing to prepare for these moments is to create a cohesive community, as mentioned above. Even with all that groundwork laid, however, tense moments may arise. Amina Johnson and Amrita Ibrahim share how they approach these difficult moments. One of the ways that I um, talk about is own your intentions and your impact. And I'm sure folks are, might be familiar with that, but, you know, and the example I give is, you know, if I step on your foot, I may not have intended to hurt you, but I probably hurt your foot, right? And so 
I think that we need to own our intentions and our impact. And, you know, when we're having these conversations and, you know, people may say things and they're like, well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, we need to understand the impact that it, that it has on folks. And I think even when we're truth telling, if we're owning our intentions and we're telling the truth because we want to um, cultivate an educational environment and cultivate anti-racist behavior, if that is our intention, um, our impact won't, shouldn't be um, as hurtful. Doesn't mean that it's not going to hurt. Doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. Um, but I think owning our intentions and our impact and truth telling are the ways um, to do that. Yes. Take a deep breath first. <laughs> a deep cleansing breath. What I have actually found is uh, asking the student to be very specific and concrete about what they're saying is very useful because when they are when they are pushed to be clearer about what they think they're saying, then you can often, you know, um, you can often get them to, to see the, the flaws in, in the points that they're putting out. So, and, and not, it's not always a flaw, but I'm, I'm thinking of a particular incident just recently where in my class, we were discussing a comparative graphic ethnography. So an ethnography drawn as a comic book where um, this question of medical access, um, inequalities over medical access was a major theme. And one of the students said, well, you know, we just know that there are some cultures that are just backward and primitive. And this person had not, has not taken an introductory course with me because hopefully he would not have said that after that. And from that, he started, I said, well, what do you mean? And so then let's try to break down what we did read, right? And then, so trying to make them be more specific about what they think they're saying, and then sort of take them from those specific points to what they think that are their conclusions. I think that helps in trying to slow down what might be the train of thought that's, you know, um, that's going very rapidly towards saying something that might will offend somebody else in the class. As you design your course, curriculum, and syllabus, you'll most likely be aware which days and topics might lead to difficult moments. As Marcia Chatelaine notes, a helpful strategy is to intersperse difficult topics to provide breathing room between them with less charged conversations. I like to modulate the tone of class week by week. I was just talking to someone about this very issue. So if I talk about a particularly difficult moment in history, for instance, if I'm teaching about the Selma to Montgomery March and violence against peaceful protesters, the next week I might dial it back and talk about music in the civil rights movement. I try to make sure that I'm sensitive to the fact that students will be challenged and pushed to talk about difficult things and that we can modulate the tone so that students can appreciate the full uh, spectrum of learning. Professor Cameron describes helping students in her large community-based learning course for all first-year medical students. She works with them to brainstorm and implement constructive responses to difficult moments and or blatantly racist comments and behavior. Here, she is working with a student who came to her upset about a racist comment from a classmate. And the student was upset to hear, um, I would call it a racist comment. It was an unkind comment at the very least. And she came and she was worried about what she should do about it. Should she speak to him or should I speak to him? 
And we decided, I decided right away, that what we're going to do is we're going to write a grant for under for shining a light on unconscious bias. That's what the title of the grant was. And we did receive funding. We did get the award. And um, I think it was the start, in, at least in my course, it was the start of conversations. That was the first thing that we did, just conversations um, during orientation at the beginning of the class we would talk about privileges associated with wearing a white coat, but all of them related to um, privilege and race and differences and finding commonalities. And the students would meet in small groups and chat, and then they would report out to the large group. For two years, the last two years or three, uh, our ODI, our Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, has a program for training students. They call them PDFs, so Peer Dialogue Facilitators. And they would be the moderators for those small groups. They would, we would give them some training and then a list of questions that they could ask. I feel like it's a, in an injustice to the medical students to not prepare them better. And it's more than more than that. It's a it's it's an injustice to our community to send people who aren't trained or prepared. I think the best thing to do is resiliency training because the world is the way that it is. It's not going to be, and it's not going to be a racist or without racism. And so, how to deal with it? how to speak truth to power, when to speak truth to power. We began this episode with a frank admission of the fact that the work of inclusivity and anti-racism is never done. Initially, this fact might seem deflating, but it doesn't have to be. Boy, <laughs> that is... I Honestly, on some level, I find it really awesome that the work is never done because it's it means that there's purpose for my life and there's a challenge for me to pursue and there's I mean I can feel myself getting better um, and that's fulfilling I think where it becomes a problem is our institutional forms of recognition um, I'm not necessarily incentivized by the university to be, to be constantly revising my syllabus, even though I choose to do so anyway. Um, but I think, the, I think that we need to think about that. We need to think about the systems that we have in place to allow faculty to do that work. And I, I think that they really want to do that kind of work. I, I, I hope that most of my colleagues would love to spend time thinking about how best to... Um, to teach their courses. I mean, that's life, isn't it? <laughs> as teachers, as mentors, um, if there's anything that I've learned from being a, a teacher, it's that you're just never done. You're always learning. And so you have to keep thinking of how can I make this better? It's a process. It's a journey that you 
undertake differently each time you teach that course. And actually, that's what I love about teaching. It's just never the same. I think of it as an opportunity. It's exciting. And it's a challenge I really love to embrace. So bring it. On a related note, the strategies and attitudes you've heard about really do make a difference. But in the work of becoming an anti-racist teacher, it's important to realize that there's no easy answer or single thing we can do that will function as a fail-safe and ensure that our classrooms are completely inclusive. Professor Cameron notes that many people want an algorithm to implement that will quote-unquote fix the problem. I feel like you, there's, not a, there's not a formula. You can't sit in a workshop or on a webinar and hear about um, race and medicine and historical racism in medicine. And you can't, like you might feel something, but it takes time to marinate on that, to think about that. And, and it takes interaction with people, not when, you're, when your guard is down, I'll say. It takes interaction with people and a chat and a, a closeness and, an, and a, a curiosity. Bob Beast has valuable advice for anyone at Georgetown seeking to take the first step. It's about direction, not distance. It's about progress, not perfection. You may aspire for perfection and settle for excellence, but I always believe that it's still unfinished business because there's still more horizons and more people. And that's not bad. So for me, if I focus on progress, if I focus on direction, if I, if I get those two down, I'm going to feel comfortable keep pushing. And so for me, my advice to faculty uh, or graduate students is just take that first step. But you don't have to take it alone. Bob made a practice of collaborating with a wide variety of faculty and staff across Georgetown, including Georgetown's Chief Diversity Officer, Rosemary Kilkenny, Charlene McKenzie Brown and the Center for Multicultural Equity and Access, Randy Bass, Susanna McGowan, and Noah Martin in the Red House, and Father Ray Kemp in the Theology Department, who conducted an examine for racial justice in Bob's classes. He also worked with members of the Center for Social Justice, including Andrea Whistler, Kira Hanlon, Jessica Lee, and Chanel Robertson. He consulted with Maurice Jackson in the History Department, Scott Taylor, the Vice Dean for Equity and Inclusion in SFS, and many staff at the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship. And so I'm trying to see, there's a rich set of resources on campus, and sometimes we get caught in the silo mentality. So I want to break down those and connect to people who are way smarter than me, way wiser than me, to help my students begin to unleash the greatness of who they are by discovering more of who they are and why they behave the way they do. People help me help my students, but also help me. I've done more reading, I've had more conversations, all because of these connections. And that's one of the many virtues of Georgetown University. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What We Are Learning About Learning. In our next episode, we will explore the experience of graduate students as teachers on our campus. This episode was made possible by many people at Candles, including Molly Chihak, James Olson, Megan Modafferi, David Ebenbach, Ellery Syverson, Michelle Anona, Jocelyn Schultz-Lewis, Lee Scalarip-Bissett, Isabel McHenry, and Praveen Gunasekera. Big thanks to the faculty who shared their teaching experiences with us, Bob Bees, Donna Cameron, Marcia Chatelaine, Amrita Ibrahim, Amina Johnson, Nick Subterello, and Sabrina Wesley Nero. 
Special thanks to the Georgetown Black Student Athlete Coalition for creating the video where they shared their experiences with race at Georgetown. Thanks also to Milo Stout for creating original music for this podcast. For more information about our podcast series and our guests, please check out our show notes, where you'll find links to previous episodes, our website and blog, the I Can't Breathe video, and other resources. Again, I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. And I'm Joe King. Thanks for listening.